God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Where we left off last week in the story of Exodus, things have gotten pretty bad for the Hebrews, the extended family of Joseph. A new pharaoh has arisen in Egypt who did not know Joseph and who did not remember Egypt's debt of gratitude to Joseph and his God for saving them during the seven years of famine. And now, seeing the people of God as a threat, he has begun to enslave them with hard labor and cheap pleasures, turning them against one another to weaken them, and finally, commanding his own people to persecute them by drowning the Hebrew male babies in the Nile. We noted last week that the devil, whom Pharaoh in this story represents, seems to work by this pattern to corrupt and destroy the people of God in every generation, our own age certainly being no exception. I often hear from people, these are troubled times we're living in, Father. I've often said the same thing myself. I certainly feel that way. And it's easy to complain about the state of things and to point the finger at some certain people or foolish ideas that seem to be the cause of it all. But I recently came across a quote from a fourth century church father that has changed my perspective. This church father lived and wrote in another troubled time. You might know his name, St. Augustine of Hippo. Toward the end of his life, the Roman Empire in the West was collapsing. It was being totally overrun by barbarian tribes. Rome itself, the eternal city as it was called, was in ruins. It must have felt to the people living in that time like the end of the world as they knew it. And they turned to St. Augustine to help them make sense of it all. What's going on here? The times are troubled, St. Augustine writes. The times are bad. This is what we humans say. But we are our times. If only we would live right, our times would be better. Such as we are, such are our times. Ouch! It hits right in the truth, doesn't it? So, we have three points to look at today. First, how troubled times begin. Second, what God is doing during troubled times. And finally, third, our response. So first, how troubled times begin in the first place. You wonder how things got this bad for the Hebrews in Egypt. And then you realize it didn't really begin with Pharaoh forgetting Joseph. It began with Israel forgetting their own God. You can imagine how it might have gone down during the years. Maybe the Hebrews were happy at first that Pharaoh was offering them free room and board in these new developments in Python and Ramses, the Egyptian suburbs. Sure, the wages were less than ideal, but it was stable work, and the beer and the meat were plentiful. Maybe they were happy to feel some sense of achievement in being responsible for building the great pyramids and monuments of ancient Egypt, 
in firing up the world's finest bricks since the Tower of Babel, and so on. These were the greatest feats of logistics and civil engineering the world had yet seen or would see for thousands of years. Maybe they had been growing distant from God for some time and felt like there was a vague and nagging sense of being on the run from some unpleasant, half-remembered truth. And they needed something, anything, to get their minds off of it. Have you ever been there before? Pursued by the hound of heaven? Hunted down by your own conscience? Nagged by that feeling that you're suppressing some important memory? And then running to the pantry or the bottle or the smartphone to try to escape or cover it up? I've certainly been there before. So, Nobody spoke up when their Egyptian bosses first started imposing unfair hours on them. And then nobody said anything when they revoked the Sabbath and messed with their contracts. And again, nobody said anything when they started branding them and revoking their rights to assembly and stripping away more and more of their dignity. And every time they chose to remain silent, they grew steadily weaker. And Pharaoh steadily stronger, and the consequences for resisting became more and more bitter. Until finally, the authorities came to take away their infants, and the slave labor became just too brutal, and they cried out to God for deliverance. Maybe it got this bad, because the Hebrew people secretly wanted to forget God, the God who calls us to live for him rather than for ourselves. The God who calls people like Abraham, Jacob, or Joseph to leave their safe places, to live difficult lives of courage, adventure, faithfulness, and responsibility. That's not an easy God to follow. The popular Canadian psychologist and author Jordan Peterson has often stated that all abdicated responsibility becomes power exercised by tyrants. All abdicated responsibility becomes power exerted by tyrants. In other words, every scrap of authority, of responsibility that we set aside will happily be picked up by someone who might not necessarily have our best interests at heart. And so it is. Has this not been proved to us repeatedly over the past several years? And we may not have learned our lesson yet. So, this brings us to our second point, the call. It's no wonder that we should ask, where is God in these troubling times? Why does he seem to be sleeping while the wind and the waves beat over us? Doesn't he care that we're perishing? But what do we see here in our passage? Maybe something that we wouldn't expect. God heard their groaning, it says, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. But then God waited. He waited for someone to turn aside and attend in the wilderness so that he might send him to deliver his people. Finally, someone did. Moses. 
Now, as soon as God sees Moses make the slightest move to investigate this strange sight of the bush burning in the wilderness, which is not consumed, he cries out his name, Moses, Moses. And then he commands him, Come no closer. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What is this really about? You might remember that as God exiled Adam and Eve from paradise way back in Genesis 3, after the rebellion, after they took that forbidden fruit, he clothed them with garments of skin to protect them from a hostile and dangerous world. Moses is now being commanded to take off those garments of skin, to remove those defenses and excuses and pretenses and stand naked before the awesome presence of Almighty God. It's like Moses is approaching the mountain of paradise again, like he's making a little return to the Garden of Eden. But just like Adam and Eve hiding from the presence of God after they took that forbidden fruit in the garden, so Moses, rather than taking off his sandals, covers his face. He hides from God. Still, God condescends. He humbles himself to reveal himself to Moses and even to share with him his personal name. Now, many of the fathers of the ancient church identify this vision of the burning bush as a prefiguration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Like the bush which burns and yet is not consumed, so Christ's glorious divinity does not consume the mortal human nature that he takes from the Virgin Mary, his mother. Even though, as the Bible says, our God is a consuming fire. Some other keen interpreters have pointed out that the bush mentioned here is not just any bush, but it's actually a bramble bush, a thorn bush. The earth bringing forth thorns and brambles was the consequence of the curse after the fall. And yet here we see it mysteriously bearing the glory of God, just as Christ was somehow glorified by his exaltation upon the accursed wood of the cross and his wearing of the twisted crown of thorns. It's glory and shame united. Moses then sees Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, here to deliver us from bondage, from our bondage to sin, death, and Pharaoh, that is the devil, that we might again be with him in paradise, that we might share his life and glory. And Christ says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I know their sorrows and I have come down to deliver them. That must not have been how it seemed to the people of Israel at that moment, would it? That's not how it seems to us in our darkest moments either, that God is with us, that he has come down and condescended to deliver us. And now come, he says, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Although it is clearly God who will do the delivering, he calls Moses to go to Pharaoh as his representative. 
He waits graciously upon our response. So what is God doing in troubling times? Where is he? He's waiting and calling out for someone to turn aside and listen. He needs a response. So that's our third point, the response. The times are troubled. The times are bad. This is what we humans say. But we are our times. Such as we are, such are our times. Maybe if we had the courage to turn aside and attend to God, like Moses did, to attend to the truth who is calling out our names, maybe we could, if we could find the faith to accept the call that God has placed upon our lives in whatever little way, then our times would be at least a little bit better. That much seems obvious enough. But if that's the case, why don't we do it? Why do we so often keep God at a distance? Well, there's a number of reasons I've seen and noticed in my own life. First of all, we might be so preoccupied that we don't even notice the bush burning in the background at the edges of our attention. So many of us have left precious little margin in our lives. We make a virtue of being busy, busy, busy all the time. Moses only becomes aware of this strange sight after he wandered dangerously far out into the uncivilized wilderness in a place of deep silence and solitude. How much room do we make in our lives day after day for silence, for solitude with Christ in the Scriptures? If our days are filled end-to-end with noise and distractions, if we're emotionally burnt out, or otherwise running on fumes, the likelihood that we'll even notice the presence of God burning in our midst is slim to none. Then there's that litany of defenses, excuses, and garments of skin, so to speak, that we employ to keep God at arm's length or further. The first one is willful ignorance. We see the burning bush, but we pretend we didn't. Have you ever had one of those moments where you see something odd or somebody clearly in trouble and you think, I got time for that today. Oh, no, 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 no. Or if I don't see it, I don't have to do anything about it. And so up go the blinders. This is something I do all the time. As soon as I have a a little inkling of a notice that my son might have a dirty diaper, up up go the blinders. My wife can deal with that. She knows. She knows. Or, like the guests invited to the great banquet in Jesus' parable, we all begin with one accord to make lame excuses. The first said, I have bought a piece of ground, and so I must go to have a look at it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must have them tested. Please have me excused. Still another said, I married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. What is this about? What's well, all these excuses that we have that come from, first of all, being occupied in earthly matters, looking at the ground, second, and being attached to the things of our five senses, the things that are materialistically presenting themselves to our senses every day, and finally, being attached to the pleasures of the flesh, 
I've joined myself to a spouse. I can't come. I can't pay attention to God. Here's how it tends to look in our own modern lives. Maybe once I get my finances in order, then I can attend to the kingdom of God. Or perhaps after a sports season is over, maybe after I get in my 18 holes of golf, after all, I've just bought a new set of clubs and I have to go test them out. God will surely understand. Or maybe when the kids move out, or after I retire, then I'll have time to pay attention to God. Or once I find the perfect church that suits my needs and personality and musical preferences and nobody annoys me or talks to me after church, then we could start thinking about God. How inconvenient that God would call me now of all times. Doesn't he know how busy I am? Then we have the classic objection of false humility. Who am I of all people to go to Pharaoh, as Moses says? We use our past or our present failings and shortcomings to judge what we are capable of in the future, rather than the power and call of God. Can you imagine what must have been running through Moses' mind as God called him to go to Pharaoh of all people? Moses, you're a murderer. Moses, you're such a bad leader that even the one guy that you saved didn't accept your leadership. How are you going to be a leader to God's people? Moses, you have a speech defect. There's no way that you can go out and speak in public before Pharaoh and his court and before the people of Israel. And to top it all off, you failed to fulfill your most basic responsibilities as a priest and as a father. Neither you nor your sons are circumcised. It's like if your bishop just decided that, well, he had forgotten to be baptized, and he hadn't baptized his 20-year-old children either. And am I supposed to be a priest and father to the Israelite people? But somehow, when God looks upon Moses, he sees not those past or present failings and shortcomings, but what Moses could become when transformed by the grace of God. Are you like Moses putting excuses between God and his particular call on his life? Which of those sound familiar to you? I couldn't possibly. I'm just this. The false humility goes up as a cloak for cowardice. And God says, but I will be with you. You don't need to worry about that. So we need to make margin in our days. Strip off the sandals and all the fake masks that we put on for the world. Lay down the excuses and approach the awesome mystery of God's presence with nothing but our bare selves and say, Here I am, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then look out. Because Christ is far more eager to reveal himself to us than we are to meet him. But this is still going to take practice because we've become so accustomed to distractions, so accustomed to the constant buzz and things grabbing our attention that it'll take time to restore our capacity to attend to God. But it's worth doing. So then what will he call us to attend to when he finally has us before him? The first things you might think of are all those obvious and unpleasant truths about ourselves and about the world that we need to come to grips with and our own role in contributing to them. 
all those ugly things. Yes, those will need to be dealt with, but not yet. First of all, God would have us attend to himself, to the mystery of his love, which is so humbly condescended to reveal himself to us in Christ Jesus, who has bowed down the heavens and come down to deliver us from our bondage to sin, death, and to Pharaoh, who has filled and transfigured our fragile human nature with his boundless divine life, who has voluntarily accepted the consequences of the fall and of our sin upon himself, taking the crown of thorns, taking the cursed wood of the cross, and making it his glory, who has opened the gates of paradise to us once more, so that we, redeemed sinners, can enjoy his presence and his life and his goodness forever. It is only by turning aside to attend to the love of Christ that we will have the strength and courage we need to look at the brutal facts and the brutal truth about ourselves and the world around us and to see not a spirit of despair but the hope of resurrection life waiting on the other side. It's only by attending to the love of Christ that will strengthen our faith to accept that personal call of God upon our own lives, to go and lead perhaps not God's whole people out of bondage to slavery, but to present the gospel to our neighbors, to our family or our friends, our grandson, our aunt or uncle, whoever it might be that God has put on your heart, however daunting that might feel. And it's only by attending to his love that will give us the strength to stand up and speak the truth before Pharaoh, to unravel his empire of lies and deception, even when it costs, uh, threatens to cost us everything. You don't have to know what it is you're getting into when you say yes to God, when you finally turn aside and attend. Nobody does. And you don't even have to feel 100% all in. Certainly Moses didn't. Like him, you can even squabble with God and argue about the details. Please, Lord, give me an Aaron. Please, Lord, somebody, anybody else. God is eager to have your cooperation. Now, we're all about to witness. God, call Isabel Marie Barron by name to be united to Jesus Christ and made a co-heir with him of his eternal promises and kingdom. Do you think she knows what she's getting herself into? Heavens no. Do you think her parents do? Probably not. If any of us knew beforehand, we'd never have the guts. But God is going to light a fire in her heart that will be burning until she's ready to attend to it. He's already lit that fire in our hearts. So let us not keep him waiting. There's just too much on the line. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.